If you were here last week, we talked about how Peter was letting them know how they can be people of influence, how we can best make a difference in other people's lives, the kind of behavior that inspires. And he, he talked about treating everyone as if they are valuable. And he, he talked about surprising people with the way that we react, that we don't react the way that people normally react according to their flesh, but we just have a different way of responding and living our lives. And so he covered all of that kind of in general, but today in this passage in the first half of First Peter chapter 3, he's going to bring it home. He's going to bring it right to where we live. Because if you are to influence others, that should start in your own family. And so what he shares with us today are some principles that can help us to bring about positive changes in our home environment and in our family. You certainly know that there are people in your family that you wish they would be different than they are. You wish you could change them. Generally, when you marry someone at first, you think they're perfect for you. They're exactly what you've been looking for. And so... But before long, you realize, okay, they might need a little tweaking. <laughs> then you start thinking, maybe a full makeover would be in order. And then you begin to wonder whether you should just call the insurance company and call it totaled and, <laughs> and just write it off. But every one of us can look at each other and go, if I could change a few things about you, our lives would be a lot better. But everything that we do to try to change people generally is counterproductive. It not only doesn't work, it makes people worse. And so Peter here is saying, here's the kind of approach that's actually effective in making a difference in each other's lives. And he starts with the wives. Now, he doesn't really start with the wives because in the last chapter he was dealing with servants and masters. He was dealing with how we respond to human institutions and government and things like that. But now he's zeroing in on the home. And so he says, he starts out, wives likewise. So everything that he said before applies to you, but now I'm going to particularly address the wives. In verse 1, 1 Peter chapter 3, wives likewise be submissive and again, the Greek word hupotasso, it means to adjust yourself under, to make adjustments to yourself in order to fit. Um, be submissive to your idiot husbands. <laughs> oh, oh, you're not reading the Greek New Testament. The Greek word there for their, your own is the word idios in the Greek, which we transliterate into idiot. Now, what the word means is that you, if someone lives in their own world in a way, that they kind of like, they're unique and not necessarily in a good way, um, but they just, this is who they are. Um, the word came to refer to people who are completely out of their minds because that's, you see them, and a good definition of that is, wow, you live in a world that's unlike anyone else's. So he uses, Peter uses that term to refer to wives' husbands, partly because he wants to emphasize that you have one. That is yours. 
This is your unique situation. It may not be like anyone else's situation. Your husband may not be like any other husband. Don't expect him to be. But this is what you got. This is yours. And probably with a little mixed in, and your husband is an idiot, because they are. So, be submissive to your idiot husbands, that even if some do not obey... And the word there means is if they're not persuaded by the word. They, without a word, may be won by the conduct of their wives. Now, often we would take that to automatically mean, oh, they don't obey the word, so they must not be Christians. Now, they might not be Christians. That It would certainly apply to a woman who's married to an unbelieving husband. But because he says... They aren't persuaded by the word, logos, but you could win them without a word, logos. What he's probably referring to here, and many of you women can maybe relate to this, no matter what you say, that's not going to make him change. You are not going to win by talking him out of being who he is. And I I suppose... This could be said for men as well, but men are a bit less prone to think that if they say enough, things are going to change. There are some men who have a temperament almost, well, some men who tend to want to just talk and talk and talk, and, but generally women are more that way. You've heard of all the studies that talk about the number of words that a woman uses in an average day compared to a man. But what Peter is saying is, So you've been trying to talk your husband into being different. How's that working for you? And he says, you know what? There are things that you can do that are way better than talking. Your advice, your input, your suggestions, your criticisms, if they're not working, then maybe there's something better that you can do. And the goal is to win, not to win over him, but to win him over. And, and no one wins in a marriage until everyone wins, but they may be won by the conduct of their wives. A wife has an amazing ability to bring about positive changes in the life of her husband, but it's not usually going to be by what you say. Generally, your greatest influence will be how you live your life. And he's going to go into some details about that. And he doesn't let men off the hook. He says the same thing goes for you men, and he's going to deal with you in a, in a few verses as well. But right now, he's starting with the wives. In those days, women had a ridiculously inferior role. And in their culture, a woman was pretty worthless. They could be discarded easily. But now Christianity comes along and Jesus announces and the teachings of the apostles announce that men and women are equal. That was a completely foreign concept to the whole history of the world up until that point. But now with that, and a little later he's going to talk about that as well, came this thing of women just going, well, hey, I'm equal to you. And so now I'm going to give you a piece of my mind. What Peter is saying is, you don't need to do that. You have more power than you think. When your character is developed, as he's going to talk about, but it's not going to be by what you say. The less you say, 
And the more you do, the better chance you have of bringing about the kind of environment in your home that will make everyone happy. Everyone will win. But it's a real question, and a lot of people confuse the term win and beat. <laughs> and and we, when we talk about winning someone, we're thinking, what I want to do is beat them. I want to win over them. I want to come out on top. But the idea here is, until everyone wins, no one wins. And if you want to see positive changes in the life of your husband, it's going to be by some things that you do rather than by things that you say. And so then he goes on and says, when they observe your chaste, that's hagnos, it's a word that means clean or holy, conduct accompanied by fear. When they observe, that word there for observe, we saw it in chapter 2 as well, as talking about people in the world looking at you and observing. It, it doesn't just mean to see or to take notice of. It has the idea that they're surprised, that they do a double take, that they go, wow, that they see how you act, and it's so different than they know that you would want to react. They begin to see changes in your life, and it gets their attention. And the idea isn't that, um, that the woman's clean conduct is accompanied by her fear. Accompanied by, you can see, is in italics, and it's not really there. It's that the husband will see how you act, and he's just going to go, wow, this is spooky. Something weird's going on here. Not necessarily that he's going, okay, what's she up to? What's she doing? But it's the idea of this is an amazing change. There's something happening here that is supernatural that's going on. And so the idea is, ladies, get their attention when you respond in a way that's differently than what they would expect. It's different than the way people respond in other situations. In the same way that he said in the last chapter, as we treat everyone that way, here he's saying in particular, women, if you will act in a certain way, men will notice, and men will be surprised, and it will even scare them a little bit. They won't want to, to then you know, um, act in a horrible way themselves because they're afraid that they're going to look like idiots, which they are, um, anyway, and this will bring about a, a positive change in, in, in your relationship and in the environment. And so he says also in verse 3, and he gets a little more specific about what chaste behavior looks like or what clean, holy behavior looks like. He says, don't let your adornment be merely outward. That word adornment is the Greek word cosmos. We talk about the whole universe as being the cosmos or a cosmological system. Women put on cosmetics. The word just means how something is arranged, designed, or decorated. Um, so in the same way that the sanctuary today is decorated to look like uh, a ship and a, an island and there's ocean and fish all around you, all of that happened because someone, a lot of people, took a bunch of energy to decorate the place and so that's what he's talking about but he says don't let that be outward don't let be don't let it be that all that people notice is how you're fixed up on the outside now 
he isn't knocking outward adornment. He goes on and kind of describes it, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. He isn't saying that it's wrong to fix yourself up. He isn't saying that, you know, real spiritual women look like something the cat dragged in. (laughs) But what he's challenging us to is to say, look, I mean, when you go out, you think about how you look and you fix yourself up, you make some adjustments. Don't just do it on the outside. If he was saying you can't wear gold and you can't fix your hair, then it would be really bad because where it says putting on fine apparel, the word fine is in italics. It's not in the original. So he would be saying, so you can't put on clothes. So clearly that's not what he has in mind. But what he is saying is look to building an attraction that goes deeper than skin deep, deeper than just what's on the outside. In fact, allow your outward cosmology Allow your adornment outwardly, the way you arrange yourself, to remind you, what am I doing to be beautiful on the inside? Because he says, rather, let it be the hidden, the Greek word there is a cryptic, person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. There is a you that people can't always see. And it's who you are when no one's looking. It's that hidden person, that cryptic person inside you. Often we lose touch with even who that hidden person is. Who am I? What is my life? But what Peter is saying is, if you are going to make a difference in your home, then you better spend more energy and time fixing up your inner self than you do simply fixing up your outer self. You fix up the outer self because you care how you come off to people. But it's amazing how many people will not put any energy into developing inner beauty and, and that that seems to not matter. And the truth is an inner ugliness will end up really destroying outer beauty anyway. There's nothing more disappointing than to meet someone who's attractive and find out that they're really a horrible person. But people are almost, they almost like to hear those kinds of stories. But he is saying, what are you doing to develop your inner beauty? Now, in our discussion questions in the bulletin, um, one of the questions that I suggest people spend some time on is, talk about all the things that people do to develop an outer beauty. Exercise, surgery, cosmetics, hair, nails, you know, men, you know, trying to, you know, lose weight and, and, you know, be buffed and to wear clothes that are uncomfortable and all those kinds of things that people do to try to look better on the outside. Compared with what am I doing to develop the inner qualities of my life? And so we could spend a lot of time and we could think a lot about what am I doing to doll up the inside of me? What am I doing to develop my inner character that ultimately is going to have a much greater effect on people around me than just the outer character? He goes on to say, inner beauty is incorruptible. It doesn't fade with age. It doesn't continuously need to touch up. But Peter would say, come on, 
Make your priority. And, and this applies to men as well as women, by the way. When he comes to men, he says, likewise. So he's going to go, yeah, all that stuff, plus I have some special uh, information for you as well. But the, but the hidden person of the heart with an incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, to be gentle, to not be forceful over someone. The word there for quiet is a word that actually means to sit down. So to paraphrase, he is saying, work on your inner person and sit down and shut up more. And as he says, which is very precious in the sight of God or literally in the face of God. Those words very precious are one word in the Greek and it's a word that means incredibly valuable. There isn't a stronger word that I can think of in the Greek to say this is really worth something. And so what Peter is saying is, as you develop who you are, as you allow those inner qualities to happen, then you will see that is so much more valuable. That is so much more treasured. And that won't fade away. Developing inner beauty is something that just grows as we get older. Not so with outer beauty. Oh, you can fight the trends as much as you can, but the truth is evolution or something randomly going from being worse to being better is disproved by every one of us every birthday we have. And we realize this is, things are devolving definitely. Nothing's, nothing's evolving. And so he, he got, he's saying, no, realize that if you want to make a difference... If you want to impact others, spend some of your time on developing your inner self, who you really are. Now, there are a lot of ways spiritually in which we can do this. See our character develop. All the spiritual disciplines, things like reading your Bible and being in prayer, listening to God, meditating on His Word, sharing the truth with others, serving Him. And there are all sorts of ways in which we can see character development happen in us. Just denying ourselves sometimes, fasting, not doing whatever we feel like doing and finding out, wow, this is actually helping me. So what he's saying is, in particular to the ladies, but it applies to all of us, spend some of your time developing an inner beauty because that is incredibly valuable. That is something that will have a great impact and effect on your family. You want things to be different, start with yourself. If you want your life to be different, if you want your family to be different, you can't control them, but you can control you and as you develop, you'll see that you end up having an influence on others as well. And that's a good thing. And it doesn't even feel like that's what you're trying to do. It's not manipulative. And then he gives the example here. He says, this isn't something I just invented. He said, for in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their idios husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. Uh, he's not saying you need to call your husband Lord, although that wouldn't be such a bad thing necessarily. <laughs> what he's saying is 
This principle has been in operation ever since there have been people who are in contact with God. This realization that I need to make some adjustments and I need to develop inner character because that's something that will be attractive for the long term and that's something that can bring about an influence for change in the life of my family, in the lives of of my loved ones. And so he says, that's always been the case. He uses the example of, of Sarah and Abraham because Abraham was kind of an idiot in some ways. He was, I mean, at one point he told Sarah, hey, just pretend like you're my sister and the local king can take you as his own and that way he won't kill me. Imagine being told to go along with that plot. You would go, you're an idiot, Abraham. What are you doing? But Sarah realized, he's my husband. And God has put us here for together for a reason. And it worked out really well. God really bailed him out. The time that we know she called him Lord was actually when, when he came home and said, hey, had a good day today. Met a, an angel that was the angel of the Lord. And he says, you're going to get pregnant. And she laughed and said, my Lord, could this really happen? I mean, we're, I'm, you're over 100, and I'm right there pushing 100. Could this happen, my Lord? See, she was still respectful, even though she thought he was probably an idiot. And it did sound like a crazy thing, but she went along with it, obviously. She got pregnant, so... Clearly, she goes, okay, whatever, we'll give this a try. And, and here, it's that, you know, look at that example. She honored her husband. In this case, it turned out, it looked like she was really smart for going along with him. Even though she laughed, even though she thought this is ridiculous, she went along with it, and they had a son, Isaac. The promises of God were fulfilled. Women, your husbands are going to come up with some idiotic ideas, but they are your husband. They are your idios husband. And you will find that you'll be better off sometimes going along with a crazy idea. Crazy idea might work, might not. You know, that's just the way it is. But there's something really powerful about believing in someone enough to say, okay, you... Call the shot. You do it. I'll go along for the ride. We'll see what happens. You may lose our whole retirement and everything, but, you know, that's okay. Let's do it your way. There are a lot of people who, because they're afraid, and by the way, at the end of the verse where he says, you do this and you're not afraid with any terror. The word there for terror just means surprise or to be tripped up. And often it's fear of being tripped up that causes women to not want to go along with something that a man wants to do. And what Peter is saying is, what you ought to be afraid of is something much worse than what they could lose. And that is what they could lose in, their, in themselves, what they could lose in terms of feeling like a man because you strip their manhood away and suck the life out of them and, and you cause them to end up being a shell of themselves. That's what you should be afraid of. And so... Again, it's the idea of adjust yourself. That doesn't mean you just do whatever they say. 
It doesn't mean, and we're going to see here when he talks to men, he makes it really clear. It's not just the man is the king, he does whatever he wants. Honey, we're going by Orange County Harley on the way home from church. Um, you can wait till Monday. But it's the idea that from the woman's perspective, and this applies to men a lot too, don't suck the life out of the dreams of, of someone who you're trying to live with for the rest of your life. Do things that will cause them to feel valued. Be supportive of them. That has always been from the old days with Abraham and others always. Godly women figured this out, that I want to encourage my husband to be a man. I want to encourage him to, to do what he feels like the Lord wants us to do. And, and I won't be afraid, even though inside I'm like, oh boy, this is another one of his idiotic ideas, but he's your idiotic husband. And so allow that to happen. Allow him some space. Give him some room to breathe. Let him follow his dreams. Don't feel like you have to fix everything that's stupid about your husband. Sometimes he might be right. You might really get pregnant. Something big might actually happen. And so to encourage that is what he's encouraging the women to. And he's saying, you'll make a big difference in someone's life when you support them in that way. Now he goes on and he nails the husbands and he says, husbands likewise. Before it was slaves, it's wives likewise. Now it's husbands likewise. The implication is you need to do all of that too, but I have some special things I want to call your attention to. And the first thing he says is dwell with them with understanding. That word dwell with isn't, doesn't just mean be under the same roof. It means be at home with them. Do what you need to do to create a home environment. The woman, if she's doing what he told her to do, she will contribute to an environment that's warm and accepting. She will make it a place where when you get home, you're not going to have to listen to everything that's wrong. It's not going to be a battle. It's going to be peaceful. The home will be that way. But husbands, you need to contribute to that as well. You need to find out how you can live at peace with your family. Because home is supposed to be a place of peace. I mean, everyone, no one thinks it'd be great to someday have a home whereby there's constant tension and stress. That no matter how good my day is, when I come home, I know here comes another fight. Here comes another struggle. I can feel my pulse quickening. I can feel my blood pressure rising. The veins are popping out of my neck because it's time to go home. I mean, nobody wants to live like that. But that's the way so many people live. And he's saying husbands and wives need to take responsibility as to what kind of an environment you create. And so a husband needs to be at home to learn how to do that with his wife. And that with understanding. The word understanding is the word gnosko, which means to, to learn to something that you know from experience generally or you know fully. Now, if he is telling men to understand women, that's a problem. Because if peace at home is determined by men understanding women, 
It's not going to happen. Um, Sigmund Freud said towards the end of his life, he said, I've, women, I've studied you for 45 years, and I only have one question. What do you want? <laughs> <laughs> no, women are different than men. Men are women than di- different than women. But to deal with them with understanding means to at least make an attempt in living with them and getting along with them to try to learn from experience. Figure out what works and what doesn't. And don't keep banging your head against a wall, acting the same way that you've always acted, doing the same things that you've always done, thinking somehow it's going to end up working. As Albert Einstein said, insanity is when you keep doing the same thing and expect to get different results. And so he says, men, you better figure it out. Things that don't work, don't keep doing those things. Make some adjustments yourself so that you can help create an environment that you want to have at home. And so dwell with them and learn as you go. Don't be the same jerk that you were at first. Now, we all, after the honeymoon, we were all pretty much men were all jerks as husbands. There's no question about that. Um, It's pretty much the way it is. But the thing is, have we grown since then? Have we made some adjustments? Wives have to make huge adjustments to their lives in order to get along with us, in order to live with us in peace. Now he says, men, you take your responsibility too. Don't let the woman just be the one who creates the home and you just kind of exist there. You get active in making adjustments yourself so that you are learning what works and what doesn't, what's blessed and what isn't. And so he says, in doing that, give honor to the wife. That word honor is teme in the Greek. It means to value. Treat your wives like they're worth something. He already said, you'll be incredibly valuable if you begin to grow. But it's important for men to honor the growth that they see in their wives. And what wives want maybe more than anything else is to feel like they matter. It's to feel like they're worth something. And so he says, man, I'm telling you, one clue is treat them like they're valuable. Treat them like they matter. Treat them as if it matters to you whether they're there or not. Don't treat them in a way that they feel like, you know what, if I'm here or if I'm not here, I don't think it'll affect you at all. Because when I'm here or not, you just do what you want. And I don't seem to matter. I'd I'd leave, but I don't think you'd notice. Except you'd go, wow, it's quiet here. And then at mealtime, you'd be like, man, I'm hungry. I better order out. He goes, no, men, treat your wives like they're worth something. Now, earlier in chapter 2, he said, honor all people. So we are to treat everyone like they're worth something. But now he says also, don't forget to treat your wife like she's worth something like she's valuable treat her with honor and respect and he goes on and says as to the weaker vessel there in verse 7 now he's not saying that women are flimsy or cheap he's saying that they're a weaker vessel comparatively now in general 
And please, I don't want some mammoth woman challenging me at the back door. In general, <laughs> men tend to be physically stronger than women. Okay? I mean, I think, yes, there may be some woman here who could beat me in arm wrestling, but I think if it's teams, I think the guys would probably have an advantage. But so often we start to assume that value has to do with strength, physical strength even, or even emotional strength. That when a woman shows a sign of weakness, and women are certainly weak in some areas, and again, not all women, sorry, some of you know would, could hold your own with a man, but in general, because women are weaker, sometimes we'll think they're worthless. But look at life. Is the thing that's the most durable always the most valuable? I mean, you can buy a velvet portrait of Elvis in, in, in Tijuana for five bucks probably. And that thing will last. It'll go from garage sale to garage sale. It'll be kicked around. You could eat off the thing. And Elvis just doesn't die. He just won't go away. But compare a velvet portrait of Elvis to the Mona Lisa in the Louvre. Now, that's a painting that's pretty fragile. And the more fragile it gets, the more valuable it becomes. Because it's a masterpiece. It's worth something. And typically, really valuable things tend to be more fragile than things that are less you know, valuable, that may be more durable. Most men, when they go to buy a pair of shoes, you're looking for something sturdy. You're looking for something that will take a lot of abuse. But most women, when they shop for shoes, they aren't really, they're not even thinking of comfort usually, but they're certainly not thinking of, I need a shoe that's going to be sturdy, <laughs> that's going to give me a lot of support, that's going to last forever, that'll just look better and better as it gets beat up. You know, and dragged behind a car. No, we're just different that way. So he says, husbands, treat your wives like they're worth something and treat them like their frailty is actually due to their treasure, is actually due to their value because they are delicate. They are, you know, they have a capacity to be hurt in ways that maybe you won't. And again, people are different. This is just a generality. The truth is every person has incredible value, and every person also has areas in which they can be deeply hurt. But he's talking to the husbands and saying, don't treat your wife like just one of the guys. Don't knock her around thinking that she'll toughen up. You know, don't treat her like you treat your boys. Your boys, you knock them around, you roll around on the floor, you wrestle with them, and, and because you want them to be tough. You really don't necessarily want your wife to get tougher. She's tough enough. And so the idea is treat them like they matter. They'll live up to that expectation. And he says, do that because you are heirs together, joint heirs. You guys are equal inheritors of the grace of life. You're equal before God. You get the same thing. But I love that phrase, the grace of life. Grace, charis in the Greek that caress of life, that, that closeness and intimacy, that acceptance, that unconditional love. And he says, that's your inheritance. But understand, 
It's something that you don't inherit by yourself. You inherit this together. And you, if you are married, now you can, there are all kinds of advantages to being single. So, you know, I don't, I, I don't want you to think, single people to think that I'm just acting like, oh, it's nothing. I'm trying to help people who are already married to figure out a way to survive. And that's what Peter's doing here. But you will never discover the grace of life like when you discover it together. When you stand there before God, the two of you, knowing that this is my husband, this is my wife, this is the one God has given me. And we are together, and we're going to work together, and we want our home to be a place of peace. And together we are going to help each other experience the grace of life. I want my spouse to feel grace when she's in my presence. I want my spouse to feel like home is a place where I won't be judged. Home is a place where it's safe and secure and I'll be pumped up and ready to go back out and take on the world tomorrow. But we inherit this together. This is something that if one person doesn't play, nobody inherits grace, the grace of life. And so he says, Understand that so that your prayers may not be hindered. And that's interesting. There are a lot of guys who, if you said, look, if you don't treat your wife as valuable and if you're not treating her the way you should, then God's not going to answer your prayers. And some guys would go, so? My prayers are like, God bless this food before I eat it. I'm not really asking God for anything. I'm just, I just want to be left alone. But we should care about what happens when we pray. We should care about the fact that we have the capacity to go to God and ask Him, and He will do miraculous things in our lives and in our families and for our loved ones. But He says, until you're doing what you need to do, God doesn't even want to hear from you. It, it, he, he develops this in other places as well. There are some people who are just so spiritual about, oh, I'm praying for everything. And they're going down and they're like praying for peace in the world and praying for people to be healed and praying for this and that and all these other things. And Peter would say, you know what? <laughs> if you are not treating those closest to you like they're valuable, if you're not blessing them, if you're not bringing a peaceful environment to them, if you're not inheriting grace with them, I don't even want to hear your prayers. What you pray doesn't matter. There isn't anything spiritual about somebody who would pray eight hours a day and act like a jerk to their family. He goes, you know, leave your gift at the altar and go and make things right. Make this your priority. And the advantage is when we begin to grow inwardly instead of just adorn ourselves outwardly, what we will find not only is that we have an impact on those closest to us, but God starts answering our prayers in a greater way in a whole bunch of other areas as well. But it always starts here. It doesn't start out there trying to save the world. It doesn't start with you, with this deep devotional life. It starts with us trying to live our lives the way God tells us to at home and then seeing what else He wants to do through our lives as we grow in Him. But it's always from that base of a strong home life. And a home life won't be strong until we begin to realize, men and women, that if we develop our inner character, 
then we will be able to inspire comfort and joy, happiness, peace, and grace in the lives of those we love. And sometimes it may take a long time before you influence them, but it will have an influence. It works better than fighting against them, that's for sure. And so, he says, your prayers will be hindered if you're not doing this. Some people would be better off to spend a little less time in prayer and a little more time talking to their spouse and encouraging them and building them up, supporting them. So then he says in verse 8, Finally, all of you, be of one mind. Think the same. Understand each other. Realize we're on the same team. Jesus prayed in Gethsemane that we would be one. So he says, be of one mind. And then he says also, having compassion for one another. The, the word there for compassion is two words in the Greek put together. Sum, which means with someone. We talk about the sum of things, meaning you put it all together and add it up. And the second half of the word is the word pathos, which refers to our feelings. Now, the word sympathy would probably have been a better translation because that's a transliteration of sum pathes, which is the Greek word here. And the idea is be of one mind, but also feel with someone else. Connect to their feelings. Begin to understand what it's like to be them. Boy, I, there are some people who I've had such a hard time with, and even as I pray for them, I kind of struggle. And the Lord showed me a while back that when I'm having a difficulty with someone or when I'm having a hard time praying for them, that I need to put myself in their place. I need to allow myself to imagine if my life was the same as theirs, if I had gone through their circumstances, their upbringing, their challenges, their trials, put myself in their place, what would it feel like to be them? And often a compassion, you know, uh, which is calm means together and passion is feeling, same thing as sympathy really, assume pathos. But I connect with them when I can get inside their head and imagine what it must like to be them. You know, anytime I look at someone and I just think, I can't figure out what in the world you were thinking. And often we communicate this literally. We go, what were you thinking? And it would be much more productive for us if instead we would say, I wonder what they were thinking. Okay, if I was them in their situation, what might have been the motivating factors? What may have been the processes that happened? Can I put myself in someone else's place? Understand, that's what Jesus did when he incarnated. When God became a man, he put himself in our place so that he could sympathize, the author of Hebrews says, with our weaknesses, so that he could feel our feelings so that he knew what it was like to be us. And at the same time, he calls us, in a sense, to incarnate with those around us, to put ourselves in their place, to understand what it feels like to be them. And when we do that, we do have more sympathy, and we do have much more uh, of an opportunity to bring about positive change in other people's lives because we're seeing it from their perspective. So he says, do that, love as brothers, you know, women, your husband is also your brother. I know that sounds creepy. Men, your wife is also your sister spiritually. And 
Sometimes people treat their spouse worse than they treat a person at church that they hardly know. He's going, come on, have that brotherly love that Adelphios. And he, and he says, but also be tenderhearted, be sensitive, and be courteous. That word there that's translated courteous is a word that means to be friends from the gut, from your hips, literally. But they felt that passion came from the hips. And so they're saying, when you connect with people, understand that you are gut friends with them. Not returning evil for evil, kakos, that which is ugly. Don't respond the way they've treated you. Not reviling for reviling. Don't say bad things because somebody else says bad things. But on the contrary, blessing. Eulageo. We get the word eulogy from that. It just means to speak well of someone. When someone dies, you like someone to do the eulogy and say nice things about them. He says, instead of saying bad things when people say bad things, you bless them. You say good things. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing, a eulageo. So he says, here's the thing. God wants you to inherit blessing. But that happens when you bless. All of us are hungry for blessing. Some of us are more aware of it than others. You know, and you think of Jacob and Esau. Esau didn't care about his blessing that much. And Jacob really wanted it, and so he conned him out of it. Later, though, Esau realized, I lost my blessing. And he, and he cried, and he was very upset that that had happened. In the same way, we all want to be blessed by those around us. We all want people saying good things about us, saying supportive things about us. And, and so he says, if that's going to happen, then even when someone says something bad about you, you need to bless them. A lot of us, the only time we ever bless anybody is when they sneeze. But blessing should be something that is a regular part of our communication. Let me tell you some good things about you. Let me bless you. Because ultimately our calling is to inherit blessing. That's what we get together. When we learn to bless each other, we'll find that together we are blessed. There are some people that when you talk to them, about all they have to say is about everything that's wrong. And that just wears you out. There are other people you know who, whenever you talk to them, there's a blessing. They're going to tell you something good. But we tend to lean toward the critical. So often when you say, hey, does anybody have any prayer requests? Yeah, a lot of people have prayer requests. Then does anybody have anything you want to thank God about? We sit there like, no, God hasn't done anything. Sometimes because our orientation is toward criticism rather than blessing. But how powerful it is when someone lives their life as a blessor, as someone who actually blesses others, speaks well of them. When I think of this, I, I think of John Corson. Um, I heard on the radio last Saturday, Michael Smith was talking about John, and he said, I always like going to John and saying, John, how are you doing? Because he said, you say to John, how are you doing? And John would stop for a minute and he would go. He said, Michael, I'm going to heaven. And, you know, that's the kind of thing that causes us, oh yeah, I am too. What was I worried about? What was I stressed about? What was it that I was, 
you know, afraid of because people were saying things bad about me, to bless. And so Peter's just going, be a blessing and you will be blessed. And then he quotes Psalm 34 here, just a good general description of how our lives should be. He who would love life, if you want to love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from cacos, ugliness, and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Hey, that's what I want. I want peace. I want to do whatever I have to do, go out of my way in order to bring that kind of peace. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. As I said on the home fellowship questions, what would life be like if we lived our lives that way? What would the environment be like? What would our families be like? What would home feel like if we just decided to be people who spoke well of each other and to each other, that we freely forgave and showed grace because there's a grace to life that we want to live in? And if we, instead of picking on each other, trying to talk each other into changing, if instead we would each develop our own inner beauty to the point where it's noticeable, to where it impacts our families. What a life life would be. And that's the life that God wants us to inherit. That's the life he wants us to live. That's how it's supposed to happen. And to live our lives that way will make us people of great influence in the most important area of our lives, our own homes. There are some people who have been able to influence other people outside their home, but people in their home just know them too well and aren't affected positively by them. What Peter is saying is start there. Live a life that's influential at home, and you're going to see that your impact will go way beyond your home. It can change the world if people who know God and walk with him could just learn to live this way. People are hungry for this kind of love. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word today. And boy, it's been hard for us to hear it in some ways because it's not easy to do this. It's not easy to live this way. And we all think of the times when we said things that didn't help. We're all aware that sometimes we're guilty of treating our spouses like they aren't worth much, taking them for granted. We've all contributed to the chaos of a home that is not the peaceful haven that you want it to be. And we can't just change overnight. But Lord, we want to do the things one day at a time that will allow us to grow into your grace that will allow us to begin to lay the groundwork for our homes becoming places that just feel amazing. Where each of us in the home feels valued and treasured. Where others who come into our home feel that this is a special place. Lord, deliver us from trying to change the world until we can change ourselves. So help us to know one day at a time, one decision at a time, one conversation or lack thereof at a time, how we can be the husbands, the wives, the roommates, 
the sons, the daughters, the friends that will bring this kind of a grace inheritance into the lives of others. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.